Well, good morning. It's great to see you guys, and indeed, if this is your first time back in the new year, happy new year. For those of you online, glad that you're joining with us. Know that many of you guys are sick and you're watching from home, or if you're outside and you're taking safeties, uh, safety precautions, awesome. We're glad that you guys are here today, and we're going to be getting into this series called Question and Answers, take our next step into it. Before we do that, though, wanted to take a minute and just pray over everybody who is sick. There's a lot of people sick out there. You've probably all heard about them or bend them. But uh, we're just going to uh, go ahead and lift them up and let's uh, pray for everybody at home and everybody who is kind of going through this whole COVID thing again and other things. Father, we just want to ask that you would please just uh, hear our prayers as we lift up those at home who are sick and those who are um, struggling through whether it's COVID or a flu, cold, or maybe it's an autoimmune flare-up, any of these different kinds of things, God. We just pray that you'd be with them. We know that it is um, scary and difficult at times to go through uh, disease, and especially in this time period where we have disease on the mind all the time. And so we just ask that you would be our God, that you would step in there, that you'd bring comfort to their souls, that you'd bring healing to their bodies, and God, that there wouldn't be any severe illness that, that hits um, anybody who is currently here or in the church in, in Olive Branch, and we just pray that you would bring it into this pandemic. We ask that you'd bring it now, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you guys for doing that, and As we uh, jump in here, we're doing this series on questions and answers, and we're pretty much just saying, hey, every good question deserves a good answer, and some of you guys have been turning these in. And this week, we've been looking through them, we categorized them into some different categories in order to kind of tackle them because there was quite a few. There's well over 50 questions that we kind of had, and so kind of hitting them here and there. And it was important that I start this week on a panic that actually happened in 1938, Uh, It was an interesting situation. People in small towns, especially in one location where the entire town went through a blackout, uh, found themselves panicked and calling various various radio stations because of some news reports they'd been receiving. In the midst of these news reports, they'd heard about an attack that had literally hit New York City, and then only an hour later, it had hit another main city in the United States, and then another and another throughout the world, and suddenly they were all freaked out at this huge attack that was happening from Mars. And uh, it, was a, it was actually Orson Welles in 1938 on October 30th that was uh, doing the War of the Worlds presentation. And lots of people had crossed over to that radio station, missing out on the introduction where they explained, this is a piece of fiction, and people began to freak out. Now, it wasn't a giant amount of people, but it was enough that it's made our history books, and many of us have heard about Orson Welles, War of the Worlds, and the panic that happened from it. And, you know, that's kind of funny to us, because who watches television and starts panicking about things they see? on TV. Uh, So anyway, um, what's interesting though is that it's a good illustration, a good parable for all of us about one particular thing. And that is that the way that you view something changes the way you think about something. And the way that you view your Bible is going to change the way that you think and read about your Bible. And this, I believe, is a critical situation. You know, we've been gathering these questions and looking at them, and it's sometimes easier to ask a question than answer a question. Anybody ever notice that? Like, because it would take me a long time to build all the background up that needs to help inform the question. And these are those, those kind of questions. They're easily asked, but they have a lot of ideas behind them that honestly are just either too simplistic or are wrong. And so we, what I'm going to try to do today is, is attack this group of questions by kind of bringing us to a, a, an idea about the Bible. Because I think we got this idea about the Bible kind of, kind of mixed up, a little too simplistic. You know, I grew up and, uh, here in Corona, and kind of the first introductions I received of the Bible was this idea that the Bible and youth group was told to us this way. It's basic instructions before leaving earth. Anybody ever heard that one? B-I-B-L, basic instructions. And so it was an instruction book. That's what I got out of it. This is an instruction book, how to live life, how to do things well. It's a self-help book, and that was very popular. Before that, no, it was a morals book. It taught you the morals and the rules of God and what you should and should not do. And, and, you, and if you do, do these things, you're going to be blessed. And if you don't, you're going to hell. You know, that was kind of one of the ideas that are out there. We called it the good book for that reason. You have um, a lot of children's ministry people who grew up in churches, leaving, having never encountered their Bible for real, thinking it's a bunch of little stories. 
And never having engaged truly with what those stories actually say and sometimes how shocking they actually are because we, we clean them up a little bit for children's ministry, a lot. And so what we have is this interesting view. Some people look at the Bible and they go like, that's just some ancient Iron Age book. Why would you even care? It's so antiquated and old-fashioned. You know? And so they don't even look at it. They've never examined it. Because the way that we think about the Bible oftentimes changes the way you read the Bible and the questions that you ask. And what I want to do today is kind of challenge us a little bit that while a lot of what I just said is true, it's not going far enough. It's not taking us to the depths of what the Bible actually is. And so in many cases, we wind up kind of disregarding it. We're asking questions that we don't even realize are, aren't informed necessarily by a right vision of the Bible. And today what I want to do is take and, and kind of unpack some of these questions that we've received by kind of clarifying this one question that I think is behind all of them. So what is the Bible? What is this thing? I mean, what is it really? If it's not basic instructions, it's not a moral book, what, what is it? If it's not a religious book, I get to kind of flip through and go, eh, what is God saying to me today? You know, Judas went and hung himself. No, that's not what, how that works. You shouldn't just do the Ouija flip through your Bible. We need to understand this is a a very specific thing. So what is it? What is this Bible? And I'm going to basically give you a long definition. So hold on. You don't need to write it down, but just be careful with me for a second because I'm not going to give you a simple definition. I'm going to give you a very long kind of laid out definition on purpose because I want you to really engage with the, uh, the question, what is this Bible? And this isn't really great preaching, I'll be honest. It fits more in the teaching, so just hold on, buckle your seatbelts real quick, but here we go. It is a collection of literary works expertly crafted by God-directed Hebrew prophets and apostles to tell the story of God's work through the Hebrew people in the world and intended for the people to meditate upon so they know their God and what they are to do in his story. All right, told you, you can't memorize that. I can't memorize it, and I wrote it. All right, so, but what I am going to do is I want to dive in and break this down for you. And as we do, I'm going to bring up questions that, will, I, that have been asked, that we've collected, that will fit into the categories that I think will help kind of make it easier to answer the questions. And so let's begin with this first, this first thought. First and foremost, the Bible is a collection of literary works. And I think this is important to remind ourselves. A lot of us, because we've grown up with a Bible bound between two pieces of leather, think it's one book. This isn't one book. This is the original Kindle. Think about it. Kindles are collections of books found in one device. This was originally multiple scrolls that were brought together and, and put into this binding done first in Corinth in the, in, in the early first century. And so suddenly you have the first Kindle, the first collection of works of the Hebrew prophets that were considered and the, and the Christian apostles that were brought out to say, this is what God has to say. And, they are, and the reason I say it's a collection of literary works is because I need to kind of step back on something. This is a book filled with a lot of different books, right? It's got a lot of scrolls. And just like any piece of literature or your Kindle, you've probably got a bunch of different genres in there. And we all know what genres are, right? Because you turn on Netflix and ask you what genre you want. Do you want to watch action? Do you want to watch romance? Do you want to watch history? Do you want to watch fantasy? And none of us, like the Orson Welles group, are going to turn on the Lord of the Rings and go, wow, this is crazy ancient history unless you're watching the History Channel. But the point is that you are dealing not with history, you're dealing with fantasy. And now it's in these genres that we understand how to read it. They understood their genres. They knew what they were looking at. When you came on a narrative, they knew it was a narrative. When they got into a genealogy, they knew what to look for in a genealogy. When they opened up and it was a literal verbal map telling you where everything was, they knew those locations. When you got into epic poetry, they understood their poetic forms and they liked them. They knew what a letter looked like. They had all of this knowledge of their own genres. So when they read it, it was already available. Now, that's not true for us. We have different sets of genres and we love to judge this book by our genres, which is really foolish. That's not how you do things when you actually study any text. And this has been the difficulty because a lot of pastors have used these, this word, what I'm going to say here in a second, to tell you how to read your Bible. And they meant something that many people didn't, that they, that they meant something different than people heard. 
And that is this, that when you read your Bible, you should read it literally. Anybody heard that term before? You need to read your Bible literally. And that basically means you don't read it like it's some fairy tale or some kind of, uh, you know, fantasy book or something that has got all of these hidden symbols in it. Okay, you read it literally. But that's gone too far. That's where it starts to be like, you see Black Hawk, Black Hawk helicopters and all kinds of stuff because it's literal. That's not literal either. What we need to do is back up and remember what we meant when, you were in semin- when I was in seminary and when I was in Bible school and they said, read it literally. They meant read it literarily. Read it like literature. Read it with the genre in mind. Don't just read it to read it. If you're not reading poetry like poetry, you're going to get confused. If you're not reading the, the narrative as a narrative, if you're not looking at a genealogy and you're looking for other things, you're going to get confused about what exactly is this book or this section of this book saying. Because this is a complex set of documents, accessible to everyone, I do believe that. But it is also something that you need to understand. There are different genres you're running into, and you read a poem like a poem, and you read a narrative like a narrative, and you read, and you read a gospel like a gospel, and all that kind of stuff, right? And so let me show you why I'm asking this. So this is one of the first questions. It's actually a collection of questions. I got this from several different people. And it is this, does the book of Revelation relate to our times? That's a great question. Aren't people wondering this? Like, are we living in the end times? The answer, according to the Bible, is yes, you're living in the end times. The second Jesus went straight up into heaven, guess what? The end times began. That's how that works in the Bible. And we, so we've been living in it for a while. But the question people want to know is, hey, I've, I've, I've been raised in a diet of I can pick up my newspaper and look in the book of Revelation, and that is this. And just, just so you guys know where I'm coming from, um, I'm, I'm a bit jaded about this issue uh, because... I came, to be, I came to Christ in 1996, and that meant I got to go through this thing called Y2K. Anybody remember Y2K? All right, so um, when we go through Y2K, what's interesting is to hear a lot of pastors on the radio and other places trying to proclaim this is the end of the world, and Jesus is going to come back, and this is one of this, and they were starting to do all these prophecy conferences, and everybody's prepped and geared up, because Y2K was going to blow up the world and the system, the grid, and a new world system is going to start on it, and all, you name it, it was happening. And I'm sitting there going to RCC, going to be an engineer. And so I had a friend who worked, who was at our church, me and my buddy, uh, sat in a car of a really, uh, really good computer scientist at the time. It was on the cutting edge of the of websites and all these different things. And he, we were driving out to school and he leaned over to us. He said, hey guys, you know this Y2K thing? I'm like, oh yeah, man, people are freaking out. He's like, don't worry about it. It's all fake. And we're like, well, he's like, what? He's like, yeah, just so you know, um, there are some issues here and there, but the vast majority of this are just computer scientists like me who are literally, and he wasn't doing it, but he knew a bunch of people were doing this, going out, starting a screensaver, making millions of dollars by claiming they're fixing something, changing a couple of numbers here, closing it up, and moving to Hawaii. It was a, it was a huge racket. And he was like, just don't worry about it. So when I'm sitting there having a party on Y2K, getting phone calls from my friends who are freaking out, God's coming back and the world's going to blow up. And then I took a history class in church history and started realizing we have done this hundreds of times through church history. We've taken the book of Revelation and proclaimed when Jesus is coming back and how these are the signs and look at this. We did it in the 500s, the 700s, the 1000, the 1200s, the 1500s, all the way through. You think I'm a little jaded about the question, you know, you know why. And I'm a Gen Xer. So that all adds together. We're all jaded. But the point isn't even any of that. The point is, is this the genre of the book of Revelation? Is this what they originally intended you to do with the book? And the answer is no. It's a well-known genre called apocalypse. Less known in the 1950s, well-known now that we've surfaced multiples of this genre. And what we find out, it is a high symbolic visionary language to try to point to ultimate theological truths that you're to work through. Now, here's the problem with symbology in the Bible. We don't know all the symbols. I'll give you an example. What does red mean in our culture? You can say it out loud. Anger, stop, hold on, whoa. You know, there's a lot of things red can mean. And we do the stop, whoa, hold on, caution, warning, because that's what stop signs and red lights have. In their culture, red meant something else. Just like right now, pink is for girls and light blue is for boys. In in many cases, you go back 200 years, no, pink was for boys and light blue was for girls. In the, the, I I think it was the 1600s. 
So symbols change and shift. And so symbols mean one thing at one point and then they mean something different. And that's what you've got all through the book of Revelation. High symbology that sometimes we're not even quite sure what in the world they're talking about. Because they knew from their symbols what they were looking at. And so when we step in and we start looking at all this stuff, you can fool yourself into thinking that there is here. Now, do I think one day that may line up? Absolutely. Do I th and the real question behind this is, do you think COVID is in the Bible? Is that what's going on? Is this one of the seals? Has it been broken? And I want to go, I don't know. I'm not going to put my hat on that. I've seen it fail too many times, and I've watched people walk away because of false prophecies. What I want to tell you, though, is the book of Revelation does relate to our time. The way it relates to the time is it tells churches how you can find yourself in the, first, uh, in the first seven churches, how churches can find themselves either spiritually complacent or too rich for their own good or they're faithful and willing to suffer. And then you have the whole section about the, the tribulation. What do we need to know? Whether you're in it or not, be consistent and faithful as a Christian because you're going to go through garbage in this world. So let's not be surprised when we get persecuted. Let's not be surprised. Let's be faithful. That's what the first part is. Amen? The second part is, guess what? Don't worry. It's not going to end in your destruction. Jesus is coming back and you're coming with him. That at least should give you support and encouragement that COVID isn't going to be the end of you. It ain't going to be the end of the church because the church is going to be victorious in Jesus. There's the book of Revelation in a little ways. Now, it's far more detailed than that. But when I get into this question, again, I don't want to get into this happening now is here in the Bible that plays up away from the genre of the book of Revelation. Now, the second question that fit with genres was this. Question number two, is Genesis 1 through 5 parables? It's a very common question that we're getting nowadays because there's been a movement lately that wants to see the book of Genesis as high-pictured stories, parables of what of human beings and our failures, but they're not history because we already know history is that, that there was this simian ape-like creature that gave birth somehow to a semi-human that gave birth to a total human and somehow raised these semi-human total humans as apes, but they didn't become that. Like, how does that myth work? And it's a myth. The more you dig into the evolution, the more you discover that the, the situations with DNA and the transformation of beings with, uh, within the genetic womb and all this, I don't need to get into all that stuff. You can go back to some of our science stuff and look at it. But that's a mythology. And what's happened is we think that's the truth. And so the Bible's got to have the mythology in it. Here's the problem. That's our categories we're pushing onto the Bible. It is not a parable. Parables exist in the Bible. Jesus tells parables. Prophets tell parables, but in no place is any narrative in the Bible used in such a manner as to smuggle to you a, quote, parable. What you do find in Genesis 1 through 5 is a very interesting combination of lots of genres to tell the story of the, of the creation and God's power over creation, of humanity's failure and the destruction and frustration of the world, and now what God's going to do about it. Genesis 1 through 5 is far more like a documentary. How many guys have watched documentaries? Anybody here? You know it's not history, right? Just, just, just be clear. Documentaries are not giving you history. They're giving you a narrative from history. And they intentionally give you what they want you to hear in a way that they want to frame a narrative so you think a certain way about history. It's an argument. That's exactly what narrative has always been for humanity. And the Bible is doing that. What God's done is he's taking these pieces, stitching them together to say, the argument I want you to hear is that I am God. I created everything. You guys sinned and I'm here to rescue you. And so I'm going to take all this information and stitch it together and put it into this picture like a documentary of a narrative so that you know what's going on. In fact, as we'll see later, that would argue against the false gods and people of that time. It is not a parable. In fact, Adam and Eve, I believe, were truly human beings. There's, we have genetic evidence that can prove that, and it goes back to that point. You, I actually do believe there was a garden. I actually do believe there was a spiritual being in the garden, whether it was you know, being a snake or not. On the, that's all interpretation stuff that we have to deal with the language. Sure, I'm good with it if that's what it says, but the bottom line is this is the best known story that leads to the, top, the best theological conclusions that God intended for us, it is, and it comes from history, but it's shaped history. It is a shaped story on purpose to teach us the theology. And so it gives you the truths in a way to bring you to a conclusion. 
like any documentary would do. And so that's, that's kind of the idea behind what we call a historical narrative. We all do this. When you go home and you talk about this today, you're not going to say exactly what I said and detail everything out. You're going to give your narrative of what happened at church, or you're going to give your narrative of what happened at your work. But that's what happened. That's how we speak truth as humans. And so this is very similar. Now, if you want more information on this and can get even better because I can't get super deep into all these things, here's a couple of resources. Number one, how to read the Bible book by book. Um, this book is a companion guide to your Bible. And what you can do then, if you don't have a study Bible, which will give you this information as well, is it'll give you each book. You can start there, look at the genre and go like, oh, this is a poem. How do I read a poem? And it'll help break up the book so you grasp it and understand what it's saying. Now, this means that this genres are going to give you that information. Another helpful one, you're like, I don't read books. All right, here, how about a video? So here you go. Uh, Bibleproject.com gives free videos on how to read the Bible. And it'll walk you from the genre all the way through these pieces and gives you a video presentation so you can engage in those ways as well. Two good resources, and there are plenty others out there. Feel free, grab a, a handbook, a Bible handbook. There's all kinds of this stuff. And I want to encourage you guys, don't just sit and pull it open because the way that we think about our Bibles changes the way that we read our Bibles and the questions we ask. And there are lots of genres we have to consider when we're engaging the Bible. Now, the next part that I want to talk about then is that, okay, well, what is this book? What is this Bible? Yeah, it's a collection of literary works, but they're expertly crafted by God-directed Hebrew prophets and apostles. What I'm getting at here is, I, is that this book is not just man's book, it's man and God's book. God inspired, directed human beings to write his words down. This is what he wanted. And so he didn't do this. Well, prophet walks in town one day. I said, you all need to repent. God talked to me. He sits down at his desk, wakes up. I have God's word. No, that's not how that works. God doesn't knock him out. He wakes up and he's written the Bible. Oh, look what, no. And it's not that God showed him and said, now write this down, Isaiah. Now write this down, Isaiah. No, stop that. No, stop that. That's not how that worked either, okay? We call that dictation theory. What goes on is that God has specifically built and made these men and these women with these concepts and understanding these realities around them with his vocabulary and this culture to sit down. And when they penned it, the Spirit guided them by what they already knew to write his words as he intended for us to have. Now, Moses started that process off and it continues forward and it's called a dynamic inspirational process because we also know there are editors, people who God raised up that were probably another prophet who were bringing the old books up to date so that people could read them. And so you get different name places that have been updated, like they updated the maps. They said, that's not named that anymore. Let's name this. And so they updated maps so people could understand what was going on. And this continues throughout the Bible and now we have this one where this, the apostles have the Bible or had the Old Testament. And then they write what happens with Jesus. This is an expertly crafted book. They knew what they were doing. And they do it extraordinarily well because the Spirit of God was upon them to give them what they needed exactly to develop the words God wanted. Now, this is called inspiration. And, um, it's, it was understood in the first century to believe this of the Old Testament and the New. For example, Peter, the apostle, writes it this way in a letter to the churches. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, meaning that they were guided in their efforts. Second uh, Timothy will also give another one where it says the Spirit of God's inspired the Word of God. And so we can get into those. And if you want more, go back to some of our series on the Bible itself and in inspiration and errant and you can get into that. But this is God's methodology. Now, this is important because one of the other questions that was asked was this, who could have written Genesis 1 through 5? Now, again, back to the Genesis stuff, the difficulty people go is like, well, nobody was there. How do we know who wrote it? And the answer is, Moses wrote it. That's really the answer I can give you. And the reason I believe Moses wrote it is Moses wrote lots of stuff from the first five books of the Bible. In fact, constantly Exodus is mentioning, and Moses wrote down, what the, all the words that the Lord said, right? So and Moses sat down before the Lord and wrote down the words. So he, constantly he's writing. You go like, well, that's weird. What, how could he know that though? Well, Moses isn't a great place to know this stuff. Stop and think about it. Moses is born and raised in the home of Pharaoh. It's taken in, adopted by Pharaoh. He's open and access to all the mythology and all the languages, all the stuff that the Egyptian empire has. On top of that, his mom is his wet nurse who gets to basically raise him until he's eight, 
teaching him all the Hebrew stories and all the information. He knows who his brother is. It's not like he's not connected with his family. And so he's hearing the stories of these people, Adam and Eve and Abraham and all this stuff. This is information for him that he knows. And then when he's finally kicked out of Egypt because he kills somebody, he finds himself with his cousins, the Midianites, who also would have had their stories and their knowledge and their information. Add on to this that Moses can probably write Egyptian and the Hebrew, uh, Paleo-Hebrew language. He already had, they had a language. We found it. We know it's there. Moses is perfectly equipped to understand the mythologies of all these places, to know the stories of Israel, to meet the, name, the named Lord, to sit down and go, I am writing out our stories in a manner that will combat the myths of this world. And when you compare the myths of the ancient world and the Genesis passages, you find they are so exquisitely put to fight off polytheism, false gods, and fear for humanity. The things that Moses does is very detailed for his time period. And it's very, it fights the Egyptian and the Canaanite views that puts it at that time period. Moses is in the right place at the right time with the right skills to write Genesis 1 through 5 having received the traditions. Well, how do we know that they were good? Oral communities hold their traditions extremely well because they're a community. And they correct each other when they get it wrong. And so oral storytelling throughout a community is extremely tight. And it's powerful when you see it done. But it is one of those things that Moses is taking this and he writes it down. And so Moses is very likely, I would tell you, he is the author of Genesis 1 through 5. Now, this means... God uses these kinds of authors. He's putting these kinds of people there. But for what purpose? He wants to tell a story. God wants to tell the story of God's work through the Hebrew people in the world. And I put it in these terms on purpose because it's God's story. And that story begins in that garden and begins in that failure and spreads from there. But even at the beginning, he promises one who is to come who's going to crush the darkness, crush the enemy, crush the serpent. And over and over, there's a promise of a coming kingdom, a promise of a coming leader, a promise of a coming one. And ultimately, the Old Testament will close without that guy ever showing up. It wasn't David, he fails. It wasn't Solomon, he fails. It wasn't any of these kings, they're all a mess. And then boom, they're done. And Jesus comes along and comes on the scene and indeed fulfills those very things. And himself, after his resurrection, turns to two men who he's walking with and says, and it says that at the beginning with Moses, that would be Genesis, his books, and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. It all pointed to him. While this is multiple literary scrolls brought together, it is one solid story. One set of anticipations that seem to grab onto the human yearnings in so many ways. Don't you want freedom? Don't you want security? Don't you want righteousness? But don't you want judgment? I mean, don't you want peace? But don't you want satisfaction? I mean, these things are opposed. They find their ways into Christ. And at the cross, these things unify. And suddenly, every theme of the Bible leads itself to Jesus at the cross and his resurrection. So much so that we back up and go, it has transformed the world since his resurrection. And over and over again, these themes appear. And over and over, these themes link and find their meaning in Christ. And if you want to go deeper into the, some of that stuff, we do a group called Starting Points, a place you can ask questions and discuss and engage. And so you can, you can look there and ask the questions and continue in some of these themes that we're talking about. But the other point that I wanted to make is that there is also this fact that it's in the world. I've said that it, it deals with the world they're in. There was a Canaanite world. There was a Hittite world. There was an Egyptian world. There was a Roman world. There was a Greek world. There was a Babylonian world. All these places had their own myths. All these places had their own arguments. All these places had their own ideas. And everywhere the Hebrews went, they always argued for the one God, Yahweh, as the only God. Over and over and over again. And they would take and use their symbolism and kind of twist it, subvert it to say, you guys think that of Baal? No, nope, Baal doesn't ride on the clouds. Yahweh rides on the clouds. And so they would use this symbolism to flip their vision to say, no, Yahweh is the supreme God. He's the really the one you should be worshiping. And we find this a lot and we can mix it up a lot. And, and this, I bring this all up here because this question, did people walk with dinosaurs? Right? You're like, 
that seems odd that this is the question, but hang in there with me for a minute. Um, I loved this question because, one, I always was that, I loved dinosaurs when I was five, and people asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I want to be a paleontologist, and I knew what it meant. And it was a nerd. Yes, okay, so... But, you know, were the Flintstones real? That's another way to read, read this, right? Did we walk with dinosaurs? Were they here on earth? And there are some Christian groups out there that will say, yes, absolutely. You know, it's a young earth. Dinosaurs were there after the, after the flood. They may have died off, but hey, the eggs could have gone through. And those that survived, they were hunted down. That's where we get our myths of dragons and things like that. Okay. Now, there's the other side that would argue, hold on a second. The, the age of the earth is old. These things are there. And so I'm going to tell you on one side, I'm going to tell you, go talk to a competent Christian paleontologist. You can find them at the university, Christian universities around. Go talk to them. They'll give you kind of how that works. Because there's going to be lots of like, well, what about carbon dating? What about tree rings? What about this? What about, so, okay, I'm not the geologist. I can tell you what I've read. I can tell you my opinion. Let's set that aside for a minute. Did people walk with dinosaurs? What I can tell you is we cannot dive in and go, yeah, the Bible even talks about dinos. It does? Where? In Job. And they will point to this passage of this creature called the behemoth and Leviathan. And it reads this way, Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like, like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. It'll go on and on and on. And then he'll switch and talk about Leviathan who plays in the water and breathes fire and is this big dragon-esque creature and appears to look a lot like a dinosaur. And we go like, look, Brontosaurus. And Leviathan's the, like, the water dinos. And that's, I, I, I've heard that. And I've, I've actually used that at times until I started realizing, oh my goodness, maybe there's more there. And diving into the background, you start to realize they're dealing with their culture. These two beasts appear. They appear in what's called Ugaritic. It was a, um, a, Hittite, a part of the Hittite Canaanite Empire area. And in their writings, they would constantly talk about the two, these two giant beasts that were created from the beginning. One was the Leviathan, very clearly known. And he would uh, cause the waves in the water and the turmoil of the ocean to come out. He was also called Tiamat. There's lots of different names for him. And so he was the blame for any kind of ocean storms and chaos that comes from the ocean. But he was considered evil because chaos is bad. On the land, there was one that was like that, and he was the behemoth. They called him, they didn't use that word, they used the, El, the ox of El. And the ox of El is this giant ox that could hide in the water or out in the desert, and he'd come out and he'd cause earthquakes and all kinds of stuff like that. He was this powerful, powerful creature. And what's interesting is the word behemoth should and could also be translated as a beast. Early Christians, when they read this, understood that these were pictures of monsters that represented the spiritual darkness. It would be as if suddenly Job is told by God, listen, you know the vampire? And describes the vampire's very anatomy and what he does. Oh, and you know the werewolf and describes the, those are our pictures of evil, dark monsters. Not at the level of these guys, but they would take these pictures and they adopted them because what God was trying to tell Job was, listen, Job, you just went through chaos. You just went through darkness. You just went through suffering. Let me tell you, if you want to take control, you don't think I'm in control of the chaos? Look at the behemoth. Didn't, have I not the control over him? Do I, am I not the only one who can slay him? Is what the text actually says. And they go to Leviathan. Have I not hooked him? Have I not pulled him in? Do I not have control over the chaos, Job? You really want me to not be in control? And Job has to go, ooh. And so these creatures showing up in the ancient world would have been something they rep knew and represented. In fact, the early church knew this symbolism. And so you find, interestingly, in the book of Revelation, in the imagery, a beast that comes out of the land that is the representative of the chaos and the evil of, the, of those worlds, and a beast that comes out of the sea, also of the demonic world. And these two beasts of the land and the sea mirror back to these images that are found throughout the ancient world. And so while, yeah, man, I want to I I hope we got to walk with dinosaurs and I know all the different arguments on that stuff. At this point, I would say that the Bible is silent about the issue. There's no direct evidence from the Bible that you could say that, hey, yes. Now, there's interpretive decisions you can make. 
about age of earth and stuff like that when you read the Bible. Again, I would point you back to genre and working through genre and working through these situations. But at this point, I would say the Bible doesn't seem to indicate that we walked with dinosaurs in a direct read. So now, I can be wrong, and we could have that conversation, but that's, that's kind of where the biblical story is at, and I would leave the science up, go talk to a good scientist and have, have the fun conversations. There's lots of them. And so the next one is this then. So knowing that this engages their world, it engages with their symbols, it engages with this stuff, and he's telling a story that's happening in our real world, why does he do it? He does it because he intended for the people to meditate upon the word, meditate upon this story, meditate upon these scriptures so they know their God. This wasn't intended just to give you a headache, make you smart. No, it was intended that you would know God. God wanted to communicate. And he communicated in poetry to some, and he communicated in, in, in beautiful prose. And in other cases, he talked in lists and engineering terms because he literally builds a temple, right? You get all this stuff in the Bible because God's talking to diverse amounts of different people over centuries, in different cultures. And what he's saying is, if you get your mind right about the Bible, what you're going to discover is that you're going to walk into a meditative world that takes you deeper and trains you. Gen- uh, Psalm 1, 1 says, and 2 says, Blessed is the man who does not s- sit, or who walks not in the counsel of the wicked and does not stand in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. This is not... Om, not that meditation, not empty. It is fill up meditation. It is contemplate and concern. When you meditate on the scriptures, it shapes you. It teaches you the right thoughts. Not only that, it teaches you right actions. Because you didn't meditate if you're not acting in accordance with what you've learned. And it teaches you the right emotions. Let me, let me put it this way. Right thinking enables you to think in the way that God has made this world. Action that enables you to love your neighbor as yourself because you should love them. And it's an action. And when you worship God, you can't stand before the awesome God and not feel awe. You can't sin and hate your sin but love somebody else and not hate theirs, right? That you're not supposed to hate their sin. You're supposed to hate yours, And why do we not hate our sin except our affections are broken and they're not molded by scripture? And if we're in it and allowing to meditate and shape and changes, it develops the way that we engage in the world. Because the ancient Hebrews were far less worried about you memorizing a text than they were you living it and knowing its meaning. You'll often find that the Old Testament isn't quoted identically to the Old Testament. Even the the apostles will even kind of take those um, slightly different. But the point is that they didn't worry that they got the exact word order. They worried that they got the meaning right. And you're going, Greg, that that, that makes me really worried. What are you you talking about? Like, uh, we need to have the exact words. Well, that's that's kind of the question that was asked, right? And notice how the questions begin to plague us if we have to have the exact words. Now, I'll clarify this in a second. But the question was this, are the words of Jesus and Job verbatim? Are these exactly Job's words? Let's start with Job. Job is sitting, he's a man who suffered greatly. He's sitting with his three friends who are treating him horribly and he's just just agonizing. And the question is, did they sit there like they're in a bad 70s coffee bar spouting poetry every 20 minutes, right? A suffering wish my heart had never been cat so no that's not verbatim it's epic poetry this is nothing to say whether job exists or not i believe job was a real person i believe his friends were real i believe he went through real suffering but they took the story of job and they turned it into epic poetry why so you would feel job's suffering you'd feel the righteous indignation of his friends so you would wrestle with what happens when the proverbial wise man has the worst happen to him that's not supposed to happen but it does what do we do And so you angst and you move, but if you just read it and you don't get the symbols and allow them to move you, you're not reading it at all. So are they verbatim? They shouldn't be because the point of the text is to call you to the struggle. And so it's epic poetry to call you to something greater than just a stenographer's written down words of Job. Did Job struggle like this? Absolutely. But that's not what God wants you to work on. He wants you to wrestle with the wisdom and when wisdom doesn't work. 
What about Jesus? Well, clearly we have those words. Those are his words. They're made in red. Well, hold on a second. I'm not going to say they're not Jesus' words, but I'm going to qualify this for a second because it's, again, you need to read your Bible uh, correctly. First of all, we all know that these are not Jesus' words in my Bible, right? Because they're English. Jesus didn't speak English, right? We all know that. Newsflash, they didn't speak English in the, in the first century. So we got that down. Okay, so this is a translation. And what, what language is it translated from in the New Testament? Greek. That's right. Did Jesus speak Greek? Yes, he did. He did at times speak Greek. We would know that he probably, when he went up to the Syrophoenician woman, and she was like, hey, Jesus, can you heal my daughter? He's like, oh, away, you know, don't do it. Yeah, I'm not only here for the house of Israel. He's probably speaking Greek because he didn't speak Aramaic. But when he was in Capernaum talking to, the, talking to all the fishermen, all those guys, he spoke Aramaic. He did, probably did not speak Greek. And in his conversation in Aramaic, which was the common language of the average person in the middle of Israel, and he went down to the temple, he probably stopped speaking Aramaic when he talked to the Pharisees and he talked to the scribes. And what did he speak then? Hebrew. Jesus was likely trilingual, if not had four languages because it likely he could have spoke Latin as well. But it's very clearly he was at least trilingual. But everything you and I have is in Greek. And so it's been already translated at some level when he's speaking to Peter and them. And we go, we don't have Jesus' words. Yes, you do. The Spirit of God worked on these men. They spoke Jesus' words. They oracle, they spoke them out. They, prophet, they preached all the time, all of Jesus' words. But they also knew when the Spirit of God was upon them how to translate it rightly so that you got exactly what Jesus said in Greek and the meaning isn't different. Remember, they cared more about the meaning. And so they would quote the Old Testament and maybe they missed a couple words, but the meaning was exactly the same. And, they made, and with Jesus, you write down what exactly God wanted us to know that Jesus had said, and it's written in Greek, even though he may have spoken Aramaic. And so I, I don't disbelieve that they're inerrant, they're not words of Jesus. But I want to challenge that, hey man, because Jesus' words aren't verbatim and you can't trust him. Oh yes, you can. They're exactly what he meant. And they should drive us to live by what he says. And, and to be quite honest, this gets into the feeling that sometimes what we do is we get in arguments over words. Anybody ever done this with your spouse or with, with your brothers or your, your, your family members? One of you says, oh, don't you say this thing. They go, well, you said this. And they go, I did not say that. And then they correct you and they speak exactly the words that you said. And it's like, it doesn't matter. That's what it meant, right? You're both arguing over the same thing. Even though one person wants to argue about the words, the other person wants to argue about the meaning. Well, the person who's arguing about the words is trying to avoid the fact that you're both, that they're wrong and the meaning was wrong. And the point is that we're talking about this kind of thing. People go like, well, it has to be exactly, well, no, no, no. The meaning is the same. Let's get to the meaning and let's obey the meaning. We're going to get so caught up in the details here and miss the meaning and live it out. We're going to be in trouble. But indeed, we have what Jesus said. We have what he told us to live and do, and we should do that. So no, they're not verbatim in the way that we would think of it. They wouldn't have even thought in those terms in the ancient world. So this is there to meditate on, to shape you, to change you, to get you active. And that's why I ended it with this. What they're to do, what we are to do in a story. This should shape you and change you so that you know how to respond in our world. You shouldn't be lost when a political issue comes to you. You shouldn't be lost when a, when a life issue approaches you. If you sat in the scriptures long enough, yet saturated it long enough, you will begin to have guidance in all of these issues. But sometimes when we take it as only an instruction book, we forget that it's there to shape your, your emotions, your soul, your mind. We should forget that it calls us to love our neighbors, to hate our sin, all these things. We forget these things because we've got to sit in it and let it shape us. But let's be honest, some of us have sat more in our entertainment or our politics or something else and let it shape us more. And we have to be careful because we need to have biblical answers. We need to have the answers that God is giving. And to give you an illustration of what I'm talking about, let's take one that was given to me that I was like, oh, great. Climate change, fact or fiction? I'm like, first of all, I'm a pastor. Why are you asking me this? That's interesting, all right. But since we said Q&A, a good question deserves a good answer. Let's give it a shot. So first and foremost, climate change. Like I would say, hey, you know, put aside the fact that I'm a pastor for a second. I would go talk to a good climatologist and, and just go ask them. Any of the universities go out there. If you, the information I've read and looked at over the years, I'm just gonna say this. Yeah, climate's changing. I know that from the Bible. You see, once Egypt was a flourishing green area and so was Israel and now it's a desert we're digging stuff out of. Guess what? That's called climate change. 
Climate's been changing for thousands of years, a lot. Well, does that mean, no, 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 no. I mean, is the earth heating up right now? I said, well, from all the reasonable data that I've seen, yeah. Yeah, it's heating up. It may not, it may be the phasing of the sun. There's lots of variables there, but as far as we can tell, sure, it's heating up. It's, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. No, the other question is, is it man's problem? Is it our fault? And that's the part that people get, and I go, could be. Have you been to China lately? I went a few years ago. It makes LA in the 70s look clean. And if you were alive to see LA in the 70s, that's nasty. We couldn't land our plane at the right airport because pollution wouldn't let us. That's how bad it is in China. They're not as bad as India. And so when you start to think, okay, maybe, maybe, I'm not going to say no, but is climate change fact or fiction? Here's what I do know. From a meditation of the scriptures, from pondering the word of God, from being deeply into this, here's what I know. Climate change is not the end of the world. It's not going to end our world. COVID is not going to end our world. I know it ends our world. It's been told to us for thousands of years. Here's what it is, a sign. Then, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's the return of Christ that ends the world. Amen? It's not going to be an environmental crisis. We're not going to all burn and char to death. And, and No, it's going to be Christ's return. That's right, I knew it. Pastor, you're telling us we, we, we can get out there and go do stuff. You know, go live and preach the gospel. Yes, but here's what I also know from meditating on the scriptures. Um, that God's concerned about this question, just like I am, because I'm a dad. Any dads out there? You're like, what does that have to do with it? When I hand my daughter the keys to my car because she can drive, I'm asking her to return it in one piece, Right? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God handed us the keys of the creation. And he asked us, as the caretakers of this world, to return it to him in a good condition. And so I, I don't think we're called to ignore when an animal species goes extinct. It was Christians who started the Humane Society to stop bear baiting and to start, stop harming animals. And what we need to remember is that we're called to care for animals because we're the caretakers. I don't know if you're not a Christian why you care. You're just another animal, and we're winning. And we were an accident to get here. It'll be an accident that takes us out, accident of climate change, whatever. I don't know why you care. I know why we care. God put us in charge, and we're supposed to care for the animals. We're supposed to care for his ecosystem that he developed. And so, yeah, I get bothered when things get burned down and taken out because we are being uncaring as stewards of the earth. You say, but Greg, it's all going to be transformed and renewed. We don't need to worry about it. The resurrection's coming. Exactly. Is that how you treat your body? Because when Jesus Christ died upon the cross, he died to bear your sins and to redeem not only you, but the whole creation, scripture says. And when he called you as a person after him, does that mean because your body's going to get resurrected, you just need to treat it like garbage? No, we know that. We know we need to be good stewards of what God has given us. Especially since he purchased us with such a great price. How much more his planet? And so even the gospel where Jesus Christ redeems all of creation still gives us a call that even much more we should be concerned at some level, and now we're talking policy and I'm not going to get into that, but I'm going to say that at some level we should concern ourselves with being parts of the solution when it comes to questions of how our planet is treated. Again, I don't think that has to be political at all. It is the call of our God to care in these manners. And so I want to encourage you guys to not knee-jerk reaction, but to meditate and allow the word of God to challenge where you're thinking and how to think through all kinds of various issues. And you will, you'll be able to. Because it molds and shapes the way we think and the way we treat us. And as you know, if you've meditated on scriptures, it goes way further down the rabbit hole than that, right? Because it gets even more complex as we think through all the other issues the scriptures include and, and implicate us to be. So I just want to challenge you guys that and remind us that, hey, the way you view your Bible shapes the way you read it. And the way you read it shapes the way it shapes you and the questions we ask. 
And so I want to encourage you guys, maybe you want to go deeper in this stuff, learn how to study scripture better. Uh, the Love Christ Keystone gives you a great introductory method in how to study the scriptures, meditate on the scriptures. It's a great place to kind of just delve into that. And maybe that's where you're at at this beginning phase. You're ready to go deeper. Come talk to me. I'll give you all kinds of great books and stuff if you want to really dive super deep into these things. But my encouragement today is from all the questions just to go, hey guys, we got an amazingly complicated, beautiful book that God gave us. It's accessible. It is, even in our time, probably more so than ever because of all the great information we have. I want to challenge you to really allow yourself to get into it. Really allow it to challenge you and not take it so simplistically because it is a powerful transforming agent that God intended for us to have. So that's my encouragement to you guys today. So can I just pray over you real quick? Father, I thank you for this, just the challenge. I know it always challenges me when I go through these things to not take your word um, in, a, in a light manner. Um, I know, God, so many of us in this world, we try to make great meals only to set them before our families and have them pour salt all over it because they thought it was flavorless. But we don't want to be that way with your word. We want to know how to take it in rightly. We want to know how to allow it shape us. You've worked so diligently and well to communicate to us. Would you just allow us to see and understand what you've given us? God, for those in the room who may not trust you, would you just allow them to take up the challenge to look at the Bible um, from a non-simplistic manner that maybe they have in the past? And God, would you just allow us to be a people after you? We want to be shaped by you and to know you. We thank you for this opportunity to be in just this, this conversation today and uh, the direction your word teaches us. Would you bless our coming week as we're in the word with you and as we're living it out? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now it makes you want to go home and read your Bible, all right? <laughs> There's so many resources and things, and we've loved the fact that you guys submitted questions. If you do have more questions to Pastor Greg, you can actually directly email him at pastorgreg at obcc.church. And this is a good way to start the conversation about those questions. Maybe something prompts you or something's unclear. Uh, we're not afraid of questions. We're not afraid of our Bibles. And so we'd love to have that conversation with you. Uh, a lot of these questions that have come up that we've gathered have been interesting because some of them have categories. And one of them has been about parenting and issues about sexuality and things. And we, uh, the, the timing of this is great because we're having a conference on parent conferencing. And so if you're, if you're interested in that, it's, it's, there's still some uh, seats available left. But this is getting really popular and really busy. So to try to get into this because they're going to talk about all kinds of issues. They're going to talk about uh, teaching your kids about a healthy sexuality how to get their faith to kind of stick, your worldview to stick with them as they grow older, and then how to manage the technology in your home because all these issues are coming into our home. And so this is a great way to equip you with that. And so we're going to give, there's a giveaway that they're giving for some of the tickets that are available. So if you have Instagram and Facebook, go on there and check that out as it pops up on your Instagram. Use an opportunity that you may be able to get to get a ticket. Uh, the other thing that's going on here, as you notice, is the blood drive out in front. Uh, you know, we as a church, they've always liked us. They, we want to be loving and, and faithful to our community. And what's happened really is with people getting COVID and being afraid and, not, and just being, even just being sick, they haven't had a lot of donations. And so they're here now to gather donations because we're one of our reliable sources. So if you go out there, bless them, say a prayer for them and whoever is being donated that blood to so they can be ministered to as well. And without that, I just want you to leave knowing that if you have any questions or you need a Bible, let us know. There's one in the seat in front of you. We'll give you that Bible if you need to. But but hopefully this challenges us to read and grow, and maybe you have some questions you can ask later on. So we just thank you so much for coming, and God bless you guys. Say hello to someone on your way out, and God bless your weekend as well. See you next week.